Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For today's episode, I'm pleased to introduce Jody McLean, CEO of Edens, a national retail development and operating company with 114 shopping centers and nine major markets. We talk about her current role and perspective of the company in today's environment, her story about growing up in suburban Chicago and then moving on to prep school up at Hotchkiss and then finishing up at the University of South Carolina and getting her internship onto her career. At that time, Eden's an Avant and has been there ever since leaving college. So she started as an analyst and now she's CEO. So it's quite a story of her evolution as a company and what she's done since she's been CEO taking over and transitioning to what she calls enriching community as her theme for the company. She talks a little bit about market conditions, and also what's going on today in the pandemic and how it's being affecting the market and the overall retail perspective. And she has some very good lessons at the end, talking about wins, losses, and her rationale for today's environment. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Jody McLean. Appreciate your participation in Icons of DC Area Real Estate. So I thought what we'd do is start... uh, a little bit about what you're doing today, uh, what your role is at Edens, and uh, a little bit about that. And then uh, I want to find out a little bit about your transition from president to your current role as CEO of the company. Sure. Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate being included with this distinguished list of real estate icons. I don't know if I've reached that stature, but I appreciate you including me with this group of people. Life at Edens today is pretty pretty good. I, I would say it's radically different than what we expected it to be as we were planning for 2020 and as we entered this year. Never did I expect that I would wake up one day and out of my 2,600 retail partners, we'd find over 70% mandated closed by the government. I think more than anything, what this pandemic has brought to us and and brought to light at Edens, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, is really this truly important role that we're playing in community. And our role in community has always been to bring people together, to feel a part of something much larger than themselves, to feel a part of community and connect. And during this pandemic, we've played this role of being able to provide truly essential services that that communities have needed during this time. So I think our work is proven out every day to be more and more important. Today, we have about 115 
places in nine major markets across the country from Boston, suburban New York, DC, Charlotte, Atlanta, Miami, Houston, Dallas, and Denver, all of which have been impacted by the pandemic in various varying degrees and, and truly in rolling sort of the, the rolling way. So that's what Eden's about. We're about really focused on our communities and our retail partners right now and helping all get back on their feet again. And my role there is CEO. It went from being, I would say, a really strategic visionary and strategic uh, business strategy leader to one that's also become as I say sometimes, chief rabbi, priest, community leader, (laughs) as we've moved through COVID and people are truly looking for leadership. And the role of the CEO has really, I think it was already transitioning, but it's, it's really transitioned during this period to a lot of work I hope is intuitive, but I don't think we were all necessarily prepared for. And I think the working communities that is going on around social justice and and inequality, especially for a company like ours, starts first and foremost at home. But if you think we touch the lives of 15 million people every single day at our places, it's important that we really address those issues internally so so that we can address address them externally because our communities are looking for that right now. So you came out recently with uh, several posts. You just talked about enriched community, which is kind of a theme that you have on your website, et cetera. And another quote that you have is, we design our places to achieve three and a half trips per week and five hours of dwell time at your properties. Assuming this is a convenience retail combined with attractions, quote unquote, how do you envision this in the era of the pandemic to be able to maintain that, you know, that pace of time and investment by your consumers, customers? Which, which is a great, great question. I would just step back a little bit and I would say that enriching community for us is more than a theme. It's really our purpose and our mission. The company was founded in 1965 by a gentleman named Joe Edens. Um, almost from beginning till now with a focus on retail. Um, at some points uh, along the way, we've expanded, but a real focus on retail. In 2006, something happened that people missed a little bit, I would say. I think people knew it was coming. They talked about it. But in 2006, what happened was broadband reached over 50% of our households. And when that happened, I also happened to have a 10-year-old little boy. I had a thriving career and loved, loved being a mother in every single way possible. But what dawned on me from that perspective is I was still responsible for for the retail at my own house. and. When I would get home at night, late, I put all my energy, all my attention to this to the family. And by about ten o'clock, as everything everybody was down in bed, 
I would literally dial on to the internet and it was dial up then for me. And I would find the white blouse or whatever thing that I needed. And it would appear at my house magically in, I don't know, 10 days. And it was, it was great. It was a life altering for me. And at that same time, we were entering into and thinking about entering these larger, much larger development projects that were called town centers at that point in time. And I was flying around the country. I was flying around the world, really looking at these town centers. And as I would go to them, I was wowed, but quickly lost my attention because everyone seemed to be the same. Everyone required a lot of travel to get to. They weren't, they weren't in the, embedded in communities because they, they needed such large tracts of land. And what dawned on me was this intersection of so many things in my life happening at one time, not this craving for more time with family, with community, with human interaction, this dial-up internet that was happening that just felt so convenient in my life, and this absolute boom of, of these places that, that didn't feel like they were distinguishing themselves. And I sat down sort of Indian style on home plate, as I like to say, and just said, something, something radical is going to happen and we need to be on the forefront, not the backside of this. And at that point in my career, I had gone through early on really having an opportunity to learn the whole business shifting then into being a chief investment officer, which really gave me ability to go deep and build expertise and build confidence to have a voice. And this was another radical shift where we sat down and we just, and strategic leadership and said, we have to do things differently. The internet's not going away. Things are going to change. And the woman is still driving. Females are still driving 80% of retail, but their lives have radically changed. What we're missing is community. And at that point, we shifted. We shifted from leading first and foremost with financial models, though I will tell you, I'll never back away. I am a businesswoman through and through. (laughs) And driving a business is still, but we shifted from leading there to leading with the consumer, to leading with people. And we shifted to being a purpose-driven company. We came up with enriched community as being our purpose and mission. And we do that by bringing people together three and a half times per week, five hours of dwell time in, in a human format. Because when people come together like that at the same place, they start to see the same people, they start to form community, whether that's relationships with the shopkeeper, whether that's relationships with the people that they're seeing routinely, you start to feel part of this, something that's larger than yourself. And that's where we've seen true prosperity happen. And that prosperity happens economically, it happens socially, it happens culturally, and it happens soulfully. And that, um, from that point forward, 
And I will not say then that we saw the great financial crisis around the corner. We knew mm-hmm. we had changed our whole business model, though. We we took down, we, we deleveraged the company. So going into the great financial crisis, we had really delevered because the way we needed to do business was going to be radically different. And so that's how we've arrived. So again, we didn't see the pandemic coming. If I told you that, that that's just not the truth. But what we did see coming were four trends that we've seen now just amplified during COVID. And the four trends continued to be the growth of e-commerce. It continued to be the rationalization of retail hyper-localization and community and why that's so important, and then trends around health and wellness. And so when you wake up one day and all of a sudden a huge percentage of your retail partners are mandated closed or with radically shifted capacity limits, you know, the world stopped. But quickly as we, we, we quickly went to a very centralized way of making decisions. But what we realized was that we were a little bit more prepared than we thought we were because we have been on these trends and really what was happening is is going to happen coming out of COVID. It's an absolute acceleration and an absolute amplification of these same trends. So we've shifted, we had already started to shift our portfolio to being deeply embedded into communities, you're going to see as we come out, I call it hyper-localization. I wrote a little bit about this this morning on Twitter, is that people people feel are going to feel safe and there's going to be a long hangover from, from the pandemic. And I don't know if that's three years or five years after we have the vaccine, but people won't forget quickly what safety feels like and safety feels like in health, not just physical safety. And so this hyper-localization, we've always said that we can attract people. If we're building community, we get about 17 minutes travel time. This is exactly what we're seeing in the pandemic. And we're also seeing that reflected in people's e-commerce choices. They're choosing to shop online and in huge percentage places that are closer to 15 miles from their home, but really the same hyper-localization trend. Where people come out and, and spend time are going to be places that are really familiar with really familiar faces. So three and a half trips per week, five hours of dwell time feel like huge numbers. They felt like enormous numbers to me back in 06. They still feel like big numbers to me, but we think about our curation and we think about our design all led by this thesis of how people want to spend time. I think for me, the radical shift that's going to come out of COVID is that we've moved from leading with financial to leading with community. And I think we're really going to make the shift to leading with humanity because this fit this trend and I, I lump it under health and wellness, but this trend of isolation and loneliness that it already started and we were already on and seeing prior to COVID is 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 just being magnified. And so people want that human connection. 
So we've got to think harder about design so that you feel safe at our places. We've got to think harder about curation. So these are trips that make, that make you feel comfortable. Um, but it's really a combination in leading in all things and thinking about how humanity, uh, we're just designed. We need those connections. And it is, um, I, I won't go into it unless you want to, but not having those human connections, it has been proven out scientifically and in medical journals, the impact, the negative impact it has on our, on our health and our morbidity as a result of that. We'll get into that a little later, Jody. I, okay. I actually have a question about that uh, when we come back to, okay. to talking about markets, et cetera. So thank you for that rather lengthy and very interesting <laughs> response. I appreciate that for that question. Uh, uh, very thorough. And I, that's uh, great. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about those themes as we go into the conversation. And I also believe now, based on what I just heard, is now why you answered a little bit about my next question, which is about the competitive advantages that Edens brings to, to the market. You have a unique approach to the industry, it seems to me, to retail. Um, just to give you a little set the table, my father was a department store retailer for 30 years. So I grew up as a child, as a, as a retail. Retail was a big part of my life as a kid. So worked at a department store myself. And so I, I understand that, you know, the whole feeling of interaction, uh, both financial as well as the personal relationship that you have with your customers. So it's, a, it's an interesting industry and in how it's evolved. It's amazing to me, you know, especially today. So let's shift gears and uh, get back to a little bit about your, your origin story a little bit. So where you came from and, and uh, you know, where you grew up and a little bit about your family and their, and their influence on your life as, as a child. Uh, a little bit. You can tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I was raised outside of Chicago, so in the near western suburbs, born in a town, Elmhurst. So my parents who want northeast, midwestern, but really grew up with what I would call solid midwestern values. Grew up by the age of six. I had my first business, which was an egg route. Um, so we had chickens and I would collect the eggs early in the morning. So, and, and sell to all my neighbors. I had no bad debt. I will tell you if my mom was here, she would tell these stories, but grew up um, in Chicago, went to boarding school in Connecticut, followed my father who had grown up in the Northeast and gone to boarding school there, went to a school called Hotchkiss, spent four years there. And then from there, went to the University of South Carolina to the Honors College. There, my godfather, who the family knew from Chicago, was president of the university. And so I was recruited there. So I have probably heavily influenced by the Midwest. Your, your high school years are so formative. Most of my good friends were from the Northeast. And I spent a long time then in the Southeast. So. I feel like I understand the country from, from multiple different geographic areas. And so I think that does give me a unique advantage. It's interesting. It's interesting. So tell me about your, your parents a little bit. What, what, what do you think they instilled in you? 
I noticed uh, in earlier uh, readings that you were an athlete. So did they encourage you to get into sports? I mean, <laughs> girls of your age, you know, uh, at least when I was growing up, uh, I'm a little older than you are, but we didn't have too many sports that girls could participate in. Um, and that really grew, obviously, when Title IX came out. And I don't know if you were affected by Title IX or not, but, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, your growing up a little bit there. Sure. I, was, I am the third of three daughters, but also grew up eight to 10 years of my life, had a foster sister who lived with us as well, who is a Native American Indian. Really? Um, who, yes, who lived with us. But my dad desperately wanted a son. Um, so, <laughs> so back then, they didn't know the sex. So I, when I was born, he, he, as he says, he quickly went from disappointment to, to elation. He says he wouldn't have known what to do with his son. But there was no question that I was going to be, at a minimum, a sports fan. And I, as soon as I could write, could keep box score at all the Cubs games, whether we were in, at Wrigley or at home. Um, <laughs> but I was also going to play a lot of sports. My dad was a college athlete and wanted that to, to share. So I spent a lot of time growing up playing competitive sports of all types. So I was a really competitive and ranked tennis player. I, I was a swimmer and I played field hockey at Hotchkiss. I became a very competitive field hockey player, developed that, worked on a lot of the, attended a lot of the Olympic development camps and um, squash. So I played a lot of sports growing up and a huge part of my childhood. My mother was an er a specialist in early education and actually started a series of Montessori schools, not only in the Chicagoland area, but as time went on throughout the country, and really? one, was one of the foremost early education, people in early education in the country. And so I think there was a very entrepreneurial spirit in my house that came from my mother. There was a very disciplined work ethic that came from my father and sports, what sports taught me, especially tennis as a young woman. Um, and I think about this all the time, in almost every tennis match, if you think about it, every game, you lose a point, hopefully mm -hmm. not more than one or two points a game. And you have to quickly recognize that failure and, and get right back in and quick correction for every set, you probably lose a game. For every match, especially, you know, as you move through a tournament, you might lose a set. And mm -hmm. that being able to deal with failure quickly and quick recovery of failure, not being afraid to go for it. One of my, so I think that really helped me. Um, one of my favorite stories that I like to tell, especially when I'm talking to young women, is don't be afraid to take the shot. And I talk about my senior year at Hotchkiss. I was captain of the field hockey team. We had beat Yale. We had beat Trinity. This was one of the final games. We were undefeated and we were tied and we went into overtime and our defense, we were playing defensive, not offensive, which is something you can also talk about. But 
our defense cleared the ball, I was forward, I took it down the field. And when I would shoot the ball, I would plant my right foot and, and strike the ball. And I was off stride, so I was going to have to shoot by being on my left foot. And I didn't take the shot because I wasn't set up perfect. And I talk about this all the time and, you know, worst tragedies have happened in life. We did go undefeated, but we had a tie on a stain on that record. But it was such a great life lesson to learn when you were 17 years old, because had I taken the shot, it could have bounced off the goalie. It could have gone in. It could any one of the things could have happened, the least of which was I didn't score. But I didn't score anyways because I didn't take the risks. And I think that happens to young women. We feel like we have to be perfect before we can take a risk, take a chance. And so I think for me, a lot of those things were sort of cleared out early on. So when I went into business, and the only other thing I would add to that is that I had two extremely strong influences in my life in grandmothers. I had a paternal grandmother who was a Norwegian immigrant that lost her husband very early on in, in life. My dad was six. My, my aunt was four. I believe they might have been five and three. And she had no education. And so she found herself in a place at a time where women weren't head of households, where she had to put herself back through school and used education to educate my dad and my aunt very similarly. My dad went to Hotchkiss, Yale, University of Chicago for his MBA, being with a, with a mother who, who was pretty strong-willed to make sure that they got what they needed, but never accepted her gender or her inability, you know, inability to have access to things as something that would hold her or her family back. And I had a grandmother on my maternal side equally as strong, whose parents was from Illinois. Her parents had lost everything in the Dust Bowl, in the Depression. She had to support them, waited to get married so she wouldn't have to give up her job. Got married, had my my mom, my uncle, and my mother. And within just a few years, her my grandfather, her husband, was drafted in World War II, contracted polio. And was completely oh. paralyzed. So again, mm. on the other side, a woman who, again, women were not really heads of households during this time, had to become head of household. And, and my grandfather spent two years in Arkansas. A lot of that time, same place as FDR was going at that point in time. But, but these were women who were, I spent a huge amount of time with my paternal grandmother, especially when I was in high school at Hotchkiss, my maternal grandmother my whole life, that just, just didn't accept that there were any barriers to women in any part of life and handled whatever came their way with grace, with dignity, but strength of character and anything less, there was an unspoken rule in our household that anything less than that was unacceptable. So I think all of these forces of family, when you asked about family, uh, which I love that question because I have just recently lost both my 
mother and father and to really slow down and push yourself to to really think about these heavy influences of family without question create who you are today and your ability your ability to take advantage of opportunities and your ability to really lead during moments of crisis I think come directly by those early influences that that we don't slow down and think about enough during our life. That's why I go this way with this interview, because I believe that leadership comes from, you know, your family roots. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. you learn a lot as a child about, you know, how to take responsibility and how to, how to make things happen and what stimulates your growth. And it's obviously you had some huge influences in your life as a, as a young girl and woman. So that's, that's phenomenal. So then uh, you left prep school, went on to the University of South Carolina. Um, yes, I did. So what a culture shock that must have been. I mean, I just can't imagine going from prep school, which is everybody's preppy. And, and this, was a, this was an all-boys prep school up until a few years before you joined there. So, that, I mean, fraternity environment, basically, to, to <laughs> the Deep South, which is, is fraternal in its own way, but it's good old boy country, you know, down there. So tell, tell me how that, how did that make you feel when you were down there and what that sense of the feeling was a little bit? Well, uh, honestly, I had never been south of the Mason-Dixon line prior <laughs> to going. I was, so it was that I entered college in 1986. And I, I think really at that point in time, I was probably considered a foreigner. Things have, have radically changed I feel like, but but I learned so much, and it took me a while to say yeah. that I. It did take me a while, but there are things that I learned in the southeast, and I think things about community that mm-hmm. have impacted me and impacted every decision because I really believe the values, the deep, deep values, and the meaning of community and human connections, though that's exactly what I had in high school and, and these are and exactly what I had in my own family growing up. I, I just think that, that, that being in the Southeast brought it to me in a totally different experience. So I, I am grateful. I'm grateful for that time and for that understanding. And then to be at a large university um, the Honors College was was a academic institution in and of itself, a great academic institution in and of itself, where it was a liberal arts. I really had a strong liberal arts with a finance degree, with a business a BS background. But it, when you're at a large public university in, in the South, I had the ability to be exposed to people I would not otherwise have had this same level of exposure to growing up in Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago and the way that they evolved was very much segregated. I don't think people talked about it back then, but all of the Greeks lived with the Greeks and all the people Mm -hmm. with Polish heritage lived with together. And there wasn't, as much of a melting pot, and all of a sudden I found myself at a large university with people of much different backgrounds than anything I had exposed being at an elite prep school 
in the Northeast. And, and so I think for me, it was, it was just a great experience. And I'll tell you a dirty secret. I did not want to go to the University of South Carolina <laughs> at all. Um, my sisters had both gone to, one went to Wash U in St. Louis, one went to Mills College in Oakland. And I really wanted to go to, go to Northwestern and continue to play competitive sure. sports. And mm-hmm. my mom had gone to big public high school in Chicago Chicago land and the university of Iowa and felt Uh really, really strongly that I needed to have a similar experience at a public university that looked more like her educational training than my father's. Mm -hmm. And there was a backroom deal. And, but, but when I look back on it and I think about all the influences that impact you, I am grateful because I don't think I would be able to lead the work that I'm leading today had I not really had that that level of experience. And and then, quite frankly, graduated in 1990, and I wanted to be back in Chicago. That that was my whole goal in life was to move back to Chicago, but mm-hmm. the economy was Terrible. horrific. Um, Continental Bank, which is one of the largest employers in Chicago, had just filed bankruptcy amongst mm-hmm. many other large institutional bankruptcies. Yep. And um, I had met Joe Edens, our founder, doing an independent study at the university. Again, had I not been in the Honors College, I don't think I would have had the ability to put together this independent study. But I really, I didn't want to learn I want. I, I they did. I I learned a lot about finance and I learned a lot about economic theory, but I didn't learn about commerce and how it was truly created in our country, and that's what I wanted to know about. And so, one of my professors helped put together this independent study on entrepreneurs, and through that I met Joe Edens, and then Joe recruited me to stay at Edens, which which was unknown, Eden's and Avant, and I had rejected his offer twice um, because I was <laughs> hell-bent on going back to Chicago, to which my father showed up at graduation and said, I, I think you need to accept that job for two years. So I-, I accepted a job as a financial analyst and was very honest and transparent with Mr. Eden's that I planned to stay for two years and go back to grad school and go back to Chicago and you know, sure. here I am 30 years later. Was he the one that turned you on to real estate initially? Or did you have an interest in real estate before that, before you met him? No, I wanted to be a sports agent. Um, really? I spent two summers in Chicago working for Universal Sports. What was back then Universal Sports. They represented both a lot of Major League Baseball players and NBA players and loved that. And I loved, to me, it sort of brought together all the things that I had passion about in life. And I I had a little bit of question because it felt like a very male-dominated, little chauvinistic industry. And so as I had conversations with with the Slackovich brothers, the brothers who founded Universal Sports, we, we all agreed that uh, um, I should get a little bit of experience in finance and probably go back and get a law degree 
an MBA, but stayed very close. And that was the track that I wanted to go down. Mm-hmm. Joe, what I felt like with Joe was that I could, I was going to enter in as a financial analyst and I wanted to have background in finance. I loved when I met him, you know, his bent on real estate, but even joining Eden's, I wasn't sold that I wanted to be in real estate. I really wanted to get experience in the finance area. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, uh, so sports was your, was your real passion. Yes. <laughs> then. Uh, it really was. And uh, so over time in that internship in that first two years, obviously your interests changed. So talk about the evolution of your growth of interest and what aspects of the real estate industry turned you on or interested you as sure so when i first started i decided that i was going to take this time to learn everything i could about the business about financing the business and mm-hmm. just be a sponge i i went and i said i really just want to be a sponge and learn everything i can learn and it also just quickly i i just observing that I would get to the office early. I'm a good Midwestern gal. I get up early. I still get up early. But no matter what time I got to the office, Mr. Edens was always at the office ahead of me. Didn't matter what time (laughs) I got there. And so finally, I realized that he was getting in around 530 in the morning. And so I said, fine, I will get in at 530. Nobody else was in in the office at that point in time. And I would meet him almost every morning by coincidence at 5.30 at the coffee pot. And he just, he, he loved that. He, he would look at me like, what are you doing here? And I'd say, oh, I'm working on whatever I was working on, which of course did not require me to be in at 5.30. And I'd say, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And, and what, looking back on it, I realized, was he was going through this time right before I had joined Eden's in 1989, Hurricane Hugo had ripped through the state of almost everything we owned. We owned about, he owned about $150 million portfolio at that time. And mm-hmm. it was all located in primarily in South Carolina, North Carolina. Hurricane Hugo had ripped through the state, damaging probably 30 assets in wow. severe ways. One large asset, that the company was developing called Debbie Do, which was a resort community on the coast of South Carolina, was really just torn in half. Everything I owned fit in the back of a Scirocco, you know, a hatchback Scirocco. So we were just two radically different points in life. He was there because he had real weighty issues. And so when I would go and he had the chance to mentor somebody who was just aggressive and smart and wanted to learn, he loved those moments. They were, they were a diversion for him. And he gave me this incredible amount of time. And then what would happen is in this relationship, all of a sudden he'd say to me, could you do this for me? Could you do that for me? And, mm-hmm. I, and I never said no to anything. It didn't matter if I even understood the question he was asking me. I'd say, absolutely. And I'd go find somebody who could help who could help me understand what it meant. And then that led to him saying, hey, we're 
working this lease out, we run point on this lease. And I'd say, absolutely. And I go sit with leasing agents and I just sit at their feet and say, teach me everything you can. And through this, I literally spent time in every single division of the company. Nothing was beneath me. Nothing was above me. I spent time in accounting. I spent time in property management. I spent time in construction. I spent time in leasing, property management. I spent time, a lot mm-hmm. of time in asset management because we were working through almost, you know, the RTC um, had become oh. our largest lender. We were yeah. going through the SNL debacle. Mm-hmm. Back then, every single asset was was security uh, for loans. So, so we were working through so many things and, and he would just throw a challenge at me uh, literally almost every day. And I'd say, yes, sir. And I would go and I would figure it out. And so, so I loved, I, I just, at that point, I was just learning so much and I loved I don't know that had I been in a formal training program or gone to a larger institution, which I was planning on doing, that I would have been as exposed as I was. And I love the entrepreneurial spirit. So that that's where I really that that's where I really was inspired. And then So my guess is you are very, very interested in mentorship because he was I, I a clear a clear mentor to you. I don't think you can ever reach your own potential without strong mentors in your life. And I don't think you'll ever reach to your heights without sponsorship. So I think those two things are extremely important um, in in any career and as you move through your careers. Explain what you mean by the difference between sponsorship and mentorship there. I'd like to hear what you think about that. Sure. I I think about the mentors in my life are people who I've gone to for guidance, people I've gone to with questions or people I've looked up to and said, you know, can you help me with X, Y, Z? I think a sponsor is somebody who's really taken interest in who you are and been been willing to put their own reputation and use their own, their, their, own credentials to really truly mm-hmm. open doors for you. You try to do that with with young people yourself to some extent. A- absolutely. I I try to make sure that young people in our uh, not only in our office, uh, young people in it, that I come across that are really talented. It, it's a passion I have. I I love to mentor the truth is that my time is somewhat limited. So if I can't right. do it myself, I try to make sure that they're introduced or have a mentor in their, uh, in their circle that can help them. I think we all, I had it. I am so fortunate and, and my mentors changed over time, but I had it. I will always eternally be grateful for that. And I think that that's something that we owe at all points of life, we owe to those behind us to help. That's great. So let's keep back onto the Eden's trajectory here. So uh, <laughs> Joe is obviously your mentor, and he took no you uh, 
took you under his wing and basically taught you everything he knew. And then you, you dug further with whatever he doesn't have time to share. You found your own way to do it. So then you grew up, you grew up quickly. And within three or four years, you were in a leadership role in the company, weren't you at that point? Yeah. So I quickly had other job opportunities. And so I had an opportunity to leave to leave Edens and and I felt like I had gotten so far. I will say that the leadership around Joe, there there weren't any there was nobody who looked like me in senior leadership in any in any dimension or any way. And probably were not as supportive of me. So I had a great opportunity to go elsewhere and make a lot more money than I was making at the time. And so I went in to resign from my position and sat down with Joe and we started talking and in a way only Joe could do. Not only did he talk me out of not leaving, he talked me into staying without a raise at the same, at the same salary. But what he did was he said, I have this huge opportunity. <clears throat> I think it's the best piece of real estate we own. It was in Florence, South Carolina which mm-hmm. is where I-20 starts. Right. And he said, this was a, a mini mall. And he said, I just know it's a great piece of real estate. And I said, Joe, he said to me, he said, I'm going to give this to you. I want you to be in charge of this. I want you to handle the redevelopment. You can pick your own team. You handle it. And if you can redevelop this piece of property, which I think, let me tell you again, is the best piece of real estate we own in the whole portfolio. I'll let you do it, whatever you want in the whole company, you name it. Anyway, very persuasive. He talked me into taking this challenge. And as, as I was walking out the door, sort of facing who I was going to draft to be on my team, it dawned on me that I was an extremely young woman. And all of the senior leadership that I needed help with were 30 plus years older than me had tagged this piece of real estate as a dog. And there was no way I was going to be able to emotionally change their point of view. So I'm walking out with, he just, he gave a coach's speech like you've never seen before. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I could have gone out, conquered the world there, you know, and, um, I stopped in the threshold of the door and I turned around and I said, mystery. I said, I would refer to him. I said, mystery. He said, yes. I said, one other thing. I fire Edens. I fire Edens Nabin. He said, what? I said, I can do this, but I can't do it with a group of people who I know would love to see me fail and don't believe in this real estate. And I, I need to fire Eden Snavian. And he said, okay. And I could sit now looking back on it. I, it's the same moment where you're, you're so, your child's done something and you know, you have to scold them, but you can't get out of the room fast <laughs> enough to stop from laughing. It was that same moment with him. And, and I can relate to it now. And he said, okay. And I think these these were the parts of me that he loved and hated all at the same time. And I said, I, I was so like, I was like, wow, I was so proud of myself at that moment. And then it dawned on me, 
I didn't know a soul in Florence, South Carolina. So I turned back again. I said, Mr. E, one last thing. He said, yes. And I said, do you know anybody who can help me in Florence? And he slowly opened his desk drawer, handed me the business card of a gentleman who really stepped in, became a mentor for me then. He said, call, call this gentleman. He'll help you in any way you need. And it was somebody who is local in Florence. And with that, I started into the real, what I would say is the real hardcore side of the real estate business. And I started hands-on redeveloping and we turned that asset around. And at that point in time created more value than we had, he had ever created on any asset. And from there, he, he held true and he said, I want to recapitalize this company. We had sort of made it through the, the early, late 80s, early 90s. We had made it through. We had used this asset to really stabilize, underpin the company financially. And he said, I want you to lead the recapitalization of the company. I said, yes. And I went right to my office and called my father, who was a banker. I said, dad, he's asked me to recapitalize the company. You got to take me to school. I, I don't even know what this means. And so, but we jumped in with two feet. And I think from there, I just caught this bug of having left side, right side of the brain where I could use my finance analytical side with really creative, a creative side that could really impact community. And I saw that firsthand. And then the whole structuring strategic vision side for me, just, just let my brain absolutely lit it on fire. And I loved every aspect. So we did, um, we recapitalized the company in 1997 and that included, you know, things like going through your first public audit, all these things. Um, we bought out 250 underlying partnerships. He had me negotiate those buyouts of every single one. Wow. Um, and we rolled the company up into a single entity brought on the state of Michigan. I know you're from Michigan, the state of Michigan retirement um, systems mm-hmm. as our partner in 1997. We closed that transaction. At that time, the company was worth about $250 million. And after we closed his why, group. Why did, you, why did you decide to do stay a pub, private company? Because typically when you do a reorg like that, you look at the public side as well. And yeah. that was a big thing in the 90s with, uh, with REIT. IPO. Right. There's no question. Kimco had gone public just just um, a few years earlier. So there was no question that that was a path we looked at. Joe knew his own strengths and weaknesses. Development had always been a huge part of the company. He did not. And, and then going through this first, first public audit, there was no question that the company wasn't really ready to be a public company at that point in time. So there were two paths. We, we came down to making a decision between state of Michigan and, and another group equally, both, both would have been great partners. Michigan was a fantastic partner to us, but Joe decided that he wanted to be able to really exploit development skills and background of the company and that Michigan 
Michigan had done the Simpson housing transaction was had a lot of experience or, or experience at least in a entity level investment. And so at that point in time, it just, it felt more comfortable and that there would be access to capital, plenty of access to capital to grow the company in a private manner. So I first heard about Eaton's. Uh, I mean, I've been in Washington since 1985. And so I first heard about you when you acquired uh, the GFS Realty portfolio here in Washington, yes. which I mentioned to you earlier, I was uh, I was involved before you acquired the property with uh, the former head of GFS Realty here in Washington, called name was Steve Osroff, yes. and I kind of worked on a a uh, an effort to try and unearth uh, the, the portfolio from Royal Ahold, who acquired Giant Food about a year earlier. And so uh, I'll share this story just before you continue. So uh, we, I reached out to Gary Rappaport, who was one of my prior guests on the podcast, and uh, through a, a mutual friend of mine, Taylor Chess, who was active at ICSC with me at the time, we reached to his boss at the time, which was Hap Stein, who was the chairman and mm-hmm. CEO of, of Regency Centers. And we brought the the two of them together, Gary and, and Hap, and we put together an offer because prior to this time when I met Steve, I had appraised the entire GFS Realty portfolio when I was at Lake Mason. So I had all the information about the shopping centers, including the rent rolls and the operating statements and everything from the appraisal. And I got permission from Giant to allow myself to, to use that. So we were able to negotiate and put together an offer, and it just sat uh, on uh, deaf ears up in the Quincy, Quincy, Massachusetts for months and months. And they just decided not to do anything at that time. So within a year afterward, I had heard that you guys uh, had gotten that portfolio. So I'd love a little bit of a story of how you learned about that portfolio, if you could share that, and also what other assets you had acquired in Washington prior to that period of time? Because I think you had at least one or two assets here before then. We did. You're going to test me a little bit in my history, but I, I, I will get this right. We and I, This I know factually. We entered the D.C. market area in 1998 with an acquisition out in Manassas, a pretty large acquisition in Manassas. There was a Home Depot anchored, and and this has sort of been our our path as we were entering. So in 1997, we closed a transaction with the state of Michigan, Mm -hmm. 250 million in size. By August of 98, we closed a transaction with Samuels. We acquired their portfolio, which was about 350 million dollars at that time, but we more than doubled the company very very quickly. And then at the same time, closed, I think it was in a three-week period, I closed on 72 acquisitions in 1998. So we had grown immensely. But through the Samuels transaction, had gotten to really know the, uh, this was primarily in Boston, New England, and then some in Cleveland, had really gotten to know the Ahold organization, the whole organization. Because at that point, they still had the tops in, Cleveland, they had um, Stop and Shop. Shop. Mm -hmm. And so we had gotten to know them well, (laughs) and we acquired several other assets 
as well from Ahold. So we have built a strong, very <laughs> fast, but a very strong relationship with them. And we were at one point in time, their largest landlord in the U.S. Because we also <laughs> had um, in the Southeast, remember, they also had Bilo. Right. So we had, a, a, we all of a sudden came out of nowhere and became their largest partner, landlord in the U.S. So I had, who was then the Ahold C- CFO, come to our board meeting because we were somewhat nervous about having, not having enough diversity. And the very next day, after he left the board meeting, he couldn't say anything. That night, he sent me an email and said, I need to give you the heads up. We are going to make a terrible announcement tomorrow. And I know I just sat in your boardroom, and I know I just took all these questions. And we had, in 2000, brought in alongside of the state of Michigan, because we had grown so fast, we had brought in beside them, J.P. Morgan Strategic Fund and New York State teachers, mm-hmm. so who, who were all on our board, all sat in this meeting, and then the very next day they announced their accounting scandal. Mm. And so, and the, I don't know if people remember that it was really out of food services, but it, it really put the company at some financial risk. And we had this deep relationship; we had sat through so much together. We had tried to buy Cascades, if you remember Cascades Marketplace, yes. Route 7. Yes. We yes. had tried to buy that from them at that point in time. It was all right around the same time. Trammell Crow had tied it up, and when I think because of the accounting scandal, but could not get it closed at the ninth hour. And they had, it was really, it came down to the two of us, and it was a painful decision with them, but they went through with Trammell Crow because they were willing to do some things we weren't willing to do, but they could not execute. So I got a call from Roger Wright at that point in time. And he said, if you can close, can you close this in 10 days? And I said, and at that point in time, I I think it was about 65. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was the largest single one-off acquisition that we had ever done. So not, we've done portfolios, but the larger single. And at that time also the, um, the white van with the shooter. I, I, I can't remember oh, yeah. right now. Yeah. What, that was 2002. What that was, yeah. Yep. What they had their name, but it was the, the that exact, the sniper. sniper crisis. The sniper crisis was happening at the exact same time. So trying to get diligence done was next to impossible We weren't willing to give on any of our diligence. Our board stepped up. Our investment committee stepped up in a way that was unbelievable. And it was a it was a rocky time for Ahold. We we already had this huge exposure to them, and we closed that asset. And they needed it closed to help with their reporting. We closed it by September 30th. That that they needed it closed by quarter end. Mm-hmm. And we got it done. And I think at that moment in time, that relationship with that retailer was so incredibly strong that when they really decided to sell those seven, they 
they called and said, hey, we're going to make this sale. You've shown interest. You've stepped up in ways that nobody else has. And so it was really, I would not tell you that they were willing to give us huge pricing benefit, but they definitely (laughs) gave us um, a first and last look to acquire those seven. And that's really what changed everything for us here in D.C., is when we could get that portfolio of seven closed and really solidified our place as one of the dominant owners in this marketplace, and then really could use that as a foundation to shift our business here um, to have a strong operating, but also to to start development in this region. That's exciting. So evolving from that portfolio, which was really a strong base, you decided to get into more development. I know you acquired more assets, but you evolved into becoming a development firm. And I think of two major projects you've done in Washington that I'd like you to to share a little bit about how they came about. The first one being Urban Market District in Noma, uh, which was an assemblage of industrial property, basically, and how that kind of took place and what was the, the original vision and, and what has been developed? Is that, is that a, an evolution of the original vision or is that, was that vision changed over time based on certain you know, market and other uh, situations out of curiosity? So um, the Union Market District, which is in Northeast DC, we started acquiring there in 2007. What had happened was we acquired City Vista, which is at KM Fifth in uh, the Mount Vernon Triangle area. We had acquired there and put that under construction when Lowe was doing the development phase. So that was, that was just the Safeway and the retail, correct? That, that was a yeah. city block. That was a city block of Safeway and the retail, and then right. there are multifamily and condos above. So we stepped in and bought the retail. We had gone under contract to buy it prior to the crisis. I guess we put it under contract maybe early 07, closed that. And once it was apparent the world was falling apart, we stayed, we closed it. We loved the dynamics of what was happening in D.C., and it was a quick aside on that one. Sure. My last podcast or one of my recent podcasts was with Mike Balaban, who was a developer oh, yeah. of that project. Oh. And then I just finished recording and which will be coming out in the next week or so. Joe Carroll and John Green. And Joe uh, was the project manager for, for that project. And he calls it his greatest achievement as a, as a developer. So, well, uh, yeah, yes, he was. And he was a great partner to work with. They were really fantastic to work with. So we had acquired that. And, and obviously closing on that when we did, we, we, we did a ton of research into what was happening in the city. We really understood what was happening in the city. And I will, I will be back then at that point in time. I didn't love D.C. so much. And mostly, I think, because I grew up in Chicago. Even though I went to high school in Connecticut, I spent a lot of my weekend time in New York with my roommate and with friends. And so 
I have been used to cities with with a lot of soul to them, with a lot of authenticity and grit, and especially in Chicago. And I, I didn't know, I would come to DC, I was spending a ton of time here. I was traveling five and six days a week, in truth, from South Carolina to, these, to our different markets. So I was here a lot, but I, I keep saying, take me to the gritty, take me to the soulful place in DC. <laughs> and it just, we, I just could not find it. And then we stumbled upon Union Market. And Union Market is the original food warehousing, it's the original warehouse district of DC. It moved, the food market moved here, the farmer's market moved here from the mall in the early 30s. So, so when we, I came here and the gentleman who at that point in time was heading this region for us now, uh, Steve Boyle, who's now our chief development officer nationally, from New York. And when we came across this, it, it was like both of us said, oh my God, like the birds came out and sang, and I thought it was the most beautiful place I had ever <laughs> seen in DC. And I said that once at ULI and I was showing pictures and yeah. everybody started laughing. And I said, <laughs> this isn't a joke to me. This is real, true beauty. There was so much soul in this place. But, but, but what had also happened previously is the metro station had gone in. The Noma Gallaudet metro yep. stop had, had been constructed and that's on the red line. And so your access to this site, both by New York Ave, Florida Ave, and being on the metro, but we were considered then the wrong side of the tracks. We were, uh, so, the, so Union Market is 45 acres. It felt authentic. It felt real. It was on this red line. And DC had, as everybody knows, has its height limit. So growth and growth was happening in this city for all sorts of reasons. I can go back and go talk about Mayor Williams and all everything that had been laid down for growth to happen in this city. But it was going to have to push what felt like to the Northeast and, and then having access, having, having access to the site. And then we were sitting next to Gallaudet, who's, who is the foremost hearing impaired university in the, in world. the, in the world, really, yeah. who had really shut their doors in 1968 when the riots happened in this area. And they were ready. They were ready to be engaged. They were, and so we started, we knew what was happening in, in the Mount Vernon Triangle area. We were there. We were watching it happen. It was, there's no question the growth was going to continue to grow this way. Mm -hmm. So we started to tie up property. We took a little TV timeout, I would say, between 08 and 2011. Um, but during yeah. that time, we worked with Harriet Tregoning, who was head of planning at that time yeah. for the city, and with the community, with the Israel Baptist Church, with Gallaudet, with the local neighbors. There were so many great institutions that were sitting, all, the schools that were sitting all around. Um, we worked then with Mayor Grace and, and Victor at, at 
that point in time to help put an overlay on this area. But one of the key things was there was a defunct public high school that was also there adjacent to us. And it was really important to us and the, and the then mayor made it happen that that was then given to KIPP to become a KIPP charter high school. So we already had great schools around us, but in order to really change what was happening in Ward 5, we were listening to the, what the local community, what the churches, what the other schools, what, what Gallaudet wanted, and education was important in all aspects. We were a food desert, providing healthy, bringing back the authenticity of this market to bring back the food to create jobs. And so what, what happened was we worked with Harriet we, and the community, and we did a small area plan. So we tried to use our time wisely to, for the small area plan. And then in 2011, we had a fire in the market itself, which was really unfortunate, but it did open an opportunity. They called me that night, late that night, and we had so much vision and passion. And they said, oh, my gosh, there is this, you know, the, the market is is burning down. and I said, you know, that's okay. We're going to build it back and it will be from those ashes will be where our vision comes from. And so we knew that we, we still have two of the legacy vendors from that original market who are still there and they're beautiful parts of this community, important parts of this community. Both have done exceedingly well during COVID because they're essential. But that's what started to change, too, where we realized we weren't just real estate developers. We were a part of an ecosystem, and we had to look at things radically different than just building buildings and filling them. We, we really had to think about our role in community, and that's from job creation to housing to partnerships throughout this community. So. Was this project part of that? I mean, was this the kind of the tipping point for that kind of thinking? No, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it was definitely the evolution. I would really give credit, and we've we've done these large urban mixed-use projects in major in several major markets, but I, I think I would give Mosaic, which sits in Fairfax and in right. Maryfield, Virginia, probably the most credit for that. That was the site we acquired this site through a long story that I won't take you through, but from the Redstone family, it was owned by National Amusements. We bought this and we wound up closing in 2010, but we really started working on that site in 2004. We put it under contract around 06. And that that project really pushed our thinking and in, in our thinking. And, and I talked about this a little bit earlier where we, moved to being purpose-driven and what was retail's role going to be in society mm-hmm. if, if um, e-commerce, there's no question in my mind that e-commerce was going to be a real force and, and really what it's become is a true partner of ours. But there was no question that we had to think about things different. But I think at Union Market, 
we went well beyond thinking about place. Mosaic, we thought a lot about place. We thought a lot about curation and design. And as we moved to Union Market, it really what we had to think about was our place in this, in a much broader sense, in this ecosystem, a, mm-hmm. a true ecosystem of community. So you have a food hall at, at uh, Urban Market. Uh, how is that surviving during the during the pandemic, or is it even uh, open at this point? We have incredibly resilient partners. We kept the market open throughout the whole pandemic. With we closed early. We closed. We closed a week or two weeks maybe before we were mandated to close. But it became very obvious to us that we were still attracting large crowds. I, I remember I was there Sunday, very very early in March, and. I just I called back to my team and I said I don't think I don't think this is safe for our community. We had large crowds there. The hallways were not or the the aisles are not wide enough to allow mm-hmm. for the social distancing at that moment. We hadn't set it up at that moment. And so we made a decision that we were going to close and that's probably I would say the hardest decision I personally have ever made because these are entrepreneurs who have put everything into these businesses. They are the heart of the community. Um, There is so much more than a place where people were going just to get a sandwich or just to get a cup of coffee. So to tell them that we weren't going to open the doors and we, we didn't know if this would be for two weeks. I mean, really we thought, we're going to close for two weeks. So we, we did, but we kept open the essential. So our butcher, our fish, our produce, we kept them open and a few others open the entire time during the pandemic. We moved quickly to being able to do delivery mm-hmm. um, through um, a delivery service so that we could meet community members' needs, people who were not comfortable coming, we could deliver to them. And they fared well going through COVID. You have a a central part of the the community. Yes. You have a drive-in movie, I understand now, at at, uh, Urban Market. We have. Talk about that, how that evolved. Sure. You You know, eight years ago, we started with this because we were we were trying to think of ways to to really how do you bring community together in all sorts of different ways of which art is a huge so culinary this has become a place of the culinary arts and is well recognized for the culinary arts at union market but other arts that could really pull people together and places where family what we struggled with a lot was we knew that families wanted things to do together that was fun and it felt very much a part of the fabric of this community and so we showed we started showing movies on the face of the building it's an all-white building and so a black building we started showing movies right there on the face of it and it was so well received and we worked hard with the city to allow us to get 
the the drive-in series back open again because it felt like during COVID people were really looking for a safe way sure. to come back out of their home to re-engage with community, but in a place where they felt safe. So so getting the getting these back open again has been huge. We've extended it this year. We're doing it much more often than we have in the past. And they they sell out as soon as we go online. So we've had great reception, great audience. It's just Mm -hmm. a fun thing. And you can see your neighbor in your car. It brings (laughs) life back to the, it brings life back. Our vendors love it. You can order food on your app. We have security there to make sure that people are safe when they go to pick up their food or if they have it delivered to their car. So it's been, it really has been fun. Have you thought about that for other shopping centers that you all, I mean, doing? We, we of- do. We are, we are doing them um, out at Mosaic. We're, we're doing, we're having them there. We got this unbelievable email. I wish I had it in front of me. It's been really nice during COVID. You receive plenty of emails of people who have suggestions on how to do things better at your place. But never have I received the amount of emails that we are receiving right now from community members who are, who are saying, because we're, we're working really hard, um, who are just saying, thank you. I got one from somebody at Mosaic who just said, thank you. My daughter, we took my daughter out. This was our first outing, totally coincidental. A classmate was sitting next to her, you know, in the car next to her. And the ability for them just to see each other Aww. and to connect as people, cool. you know, for a family moment. So Union Market right now, we're doing this all over the country, but I'll talk about Union Market since we're here locally, is we have just put up an amazing outdoor art exhibit, photography exhibit. It's 25 photographs that are large scale done by five artists. DC DMV artist uh, that is called Celebrating Melanin and Black Heritage. And so we are able to, you are able to go. Every photograph has a QR code. If you click on the QR code, you can go through a self-guided tour of the exhibit. You can learn about the artist. You can do it in a socially distant way. Um, The photography is beautiful. I, uh, my husband, the first time we could get over there to see it had been up a day or two. And I said, we, we have to ride our bikes over. We have to just go observe, which is one of the things I like to do is just observe how are people behaving and what's happening in our places. And it was phenomenal to watch people just walking down the street and they'd walk by a photograph and they'd, she'd knock her husband or and they'd go back. And then they look at it, but sometimes they find the QR code. Sometimes they when people are wearing their masks and all of a sudden there's two other people, nobody knows how close to stand to each other, but then they start a conversation. And you can feel this energy and this enthusiasm, not only about this beautiful art, but this connection with other people that's happening. Yeah. And people are really grateful for it. So we're getting this, it's, a, it's you know, I take the silver linings where we can get them. But right now, I will say that I'm getting more emails than ever from people saying thank you. Thank you for all the little things that are happening that give us, our family, a place 
to re-engage in community in a safe way. This is like an outdoor museum, in essence, is what it is to some extent. Yeah. Like. That's yeah. very cool. All right. So are you doing that also at Mosaic, something like that? We're doing some different things at Mosaic and Mosaic, and we do have murals throughout all of Mosaic and we're celebrating art everywhere. And soon all of our art will have QR codes so you can really start to learn more about it. <laughs> at um, Mosaic, we have turned our park into, we have a one acre park there and then the street right in front of it called Strawberry Lane. We have made that, designed that in socially distant circles and and set up a lot of outdoor dining to give people a place where Good. they can come and feel really safe but also we've set up games for people to engage in with one another in socially distant ways we have not turned back on we have fountains there that are usually full of young children it did not feel like that was wise during um covid and, and the park hasn't missed a beat though with a lot of respect and so we're doing we are doing movies there we're showing outdoor concerts there on our screen so that people can come back start to be around other people but with space to feel really safe and to be outdoors so you you talked a little bit about mosaics evolution i think about that area uh in merrifield and it's, you know, you're quite a walk from the Dunmore Metro station there. So it, you wouldn't call that a TOD location. So I'm curious as to, I mean, and I, everyone I've talked to about it, but I've, and this is just incidental, has said it's one of the most special places they've ever been from a retail environment. So, you know, you, you already talked about how you did it with Urban Market. Talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the evolution of Mosaic and how it became what it is. So engaging for people. Well, you're, you're kind to say that. You know, we, as I said early on, this was really the asset that I think changed, changed a lot for us and, and was one that really forced me to this intersection of instead of driving first and foremost with financials, though very important, driving first and foremost with the consumer and thinking first and leading first in our decisions about the consumer. And so how that mosaic actually has a one-acre park because people said to me left and right, you are crazy to build more retail in the shadows of Tyson's Corner. <laughs> and, and on paper, you're not wrong. You're, nobody, nobody could argue that statement. But when you really dive into this community, which is extraordinary in Northern Virginia, this is this is an exceptional place. When you look at every demographic trend that is out here, it is exceptional. But what was missing was you had this exceptional community who really had anything they wanted to consume at the mall. But they didn't have any place to come together as a community mm -hmm. and to be a community and to slow down and just interact with one another. And so that's what really led. We set a value system that we wanted to see happen here. So 
instead of first leading again with just a pro forma and a budget, we said, what are the values of this place? Who is the consumer here? And we really got to know her and we, we actually, we had three and we named them and we got to know her and her lifestyle and what did she want to do when she was here and who did she want to do it with? And therefore, how, how do you build a place? And then the other thing that was really important was if we do this right, this is a really highly educated community as well. They want a sense of discovery. And so we really tried to think about this community in ways that meet everything about them. And, and though we lead, because 80% of retail decisions are, are still made by women. That's the, one, that's the only thing that's been consistent in my career. That I would tell you that's the only stat. Other than that, it, we are moving at light speed in changing and evolving. But we needed to make sure, because she wasn't always showing up, but she was telling her husband where to go or her brother where to go or her boyfriend where to go. He was always taking the cue from her. So we needed to make sure it was her favorite spot, but that he felt extremely comfortable there and that he could also really enjoy his time there. So we spent a lot of we spent a ridiculous amount of time is what I would tell you and because it was the first time we had been through it in shutting our eyes, walking down the street and making sure that you felt really good at all. If you needed to be in and out in five minutes because you were late for Little League, but you needed a gallon of milk, you can pull into that mom's parking lot and be right back out. There are no barriers. It feel even though you're in a deck, it feels like open surface parking. And it is as convenient as any other any other grocer that's out there. If you want to take a long stroll and and have dinner and go to a movie because it's your date night, it's gonna feel really romantic and it's gonna feel relaxed and good. And if you're there and you bump into your neighbor that you haven't seen, you, there's a place for you to sit and catch up. There's a place for moms who want to spend time. They, we all want to spend time with our kids. So thinking about how the kids are welcome there, tweeners, you know, young teens who, who really need, want places to be able to go and spend time what is here for them. So, so there has been a lot of thought in feel. There's been a lot of thought in consumer. And then the curation, what is going to drive people in a place like this to actually want to come three and a half times per week, five hours to dwell time, because that's not how you go to your mall. And that's what this group was used to. How did you, uh, your design process work there? And what... <laughs> Did you have a good architect uh, that helped you think that through? And uh, tell me about that experience and that, ex that effort. Sure. I would tell you we had the best architect. We loved him so much that, so we had hired RTKL. Okay. And in particular, a gentleman named Bill Caldwell was assigned to us. And what I have come to learn is that we are a real pain in the ass client for most architects because we're, we're opinionated. And I, 
I feel like I personally am the ultimate community member who's going to spend time here. And I, I'm, if it doesn't feel right, I'm not willing to go forward. And um, so at that time, Bill was doing urban planning globally. So I would call him wanting to talk about something. He'd be in China or he'd be in Brazil or he'd be in the Middle East. And he's highly talented. And finally, I just said, Bill, you got three choices. We're about to fire our TKL and hire somebody else because I want, I really want to have an interactive relationship. You can put somebody else on the account or you can come work for us full time and, and run planning and construction for Edens. And he said, really? I'll take door three. <laughs> you know, he said, wow, wow, I never thought about that. So we brought him on. Wow. Uh, incredibly talented at upfront planning. But we said, here's the deal. You also are going to have to run construction because I don't want to go through all this upfront planning and then have it all value engineered and move through like it's an assembly line when construction happens on site. We're going to hold the people up front equally accountable for what's delivered. I don't know if Bill would say that, but say this, but I would say it's been a great partnership and the depth of intellect he has brought to Edens has been incredible. And then at that same point in time, we were starting into sustainability. Um, All of Eden's projects today are carbon neutral in our common areas. We'd set a goal earlier this year that we were going to be common carbon neutral, including our retail partners by 2025. Mm -hmm. I think COVID, I hope not, but I think COVID might have slowed down that just a little bit because of priorities with our retail partners, but, but Bill's background also allowed him to be able to strategically help us drive that as well. So, so yeah, we architecture um, architects are extremely important to us. And and then we, we worked with some consultants as well, um, real placemaking consultants. And I don't mean as much as architects, we are great landscape architects and we are great urban planner, but people who really understood the emotional feel at a place, which, mm-hmm. which is like an odd thing to say, but I really, I knew it intuitively, but I wanted to be educated in that area to not, you know, if I could avoid making some mistakes. So we brought on some consultants there, but RTKL was our partner in that design of the place. Yeah, well, they, of course, are well-known for being regional mall uh, architects yep. and historically. And so retail has been in their blood for probably 50 years or more. Yes. A Baltimore-based firm. And I think James Rouse, Jim Rouse used them for most of his projects. So right. that was the evolution of the process. But it seems to me that Mosaic is not a mall in any stretch of the imagination. It's a different type of property. So there had to have been some fresh thinking there that he may have had to bring from somewhere else in the world, I'm guessing, to to that property to some extent. Is that yeah, true we, or not? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we studied we studied streets in London. We studied streets right. in Paris. Right. Um, we really left the country. We studied streets in Canada. We studied all over so that we could really understand 
you know, from little things to big things to, to lighting. There's so much that goes into how somebody feels. Um, mm -hmm. I went on a tour. I'll never forget this. I went on a two day tour of parking garages um, <laughs> because I really, you know, we, we, that wasn't our background. Our background was, was yeah. more strip open yeah, field right. parking. Surface and, lots, yeah. and as a woman, and what I would say to the team is, I hate parking decks. And they'd say, yeah, my, my wife really? does too. Why? And I'd say, I don't, let's go, let's go. And I will tell you everyone we drive in, because I can't tell you just sitting here, but when we enter, I'll be able to tell you they're dark, they're creepy. You do not feel safe here. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like taking blind left turns. They're not well, you know, like I, I could, and we went on the, these tour and we talked to parking consultants and said, send us to, you know, the three best. And so we went and probably looked at 15 different parking garages and really learned how we wanted to design a parking garage where, because I get 17 minutes. That's all I get from the time you think about, oh, I'm going to leave my house and go someplace. Mm -hmm. to the minute you walk in a front door. Mm -hmm. that, that's it. And those 17 minutes have to be efficient. So traffic along the way is going to matter. There's only so much I can do. But getting you into my site, getting you through a parking, especially structured parking deck, as quickly and as fast and having clear access to, to, our, to the entrance is extremely important to us. And we're conscious of that. It, we're really conscious, and I keep saying, listen, she's not going to send her most beloved aspect of her life, whether that's her husband, her boyfriend, her child, she's not going to send them to a place that feels creepy to her. So if it's mm -hmm. a dark garage, if it's got dark shadows in it, if it's not well signed, she's not going to tell them, hey, run over to Mosaic and grab XYZ, or oh, you want to take your girlfriend on a date? Mom, where should I go? Go here. She's not going to send them there if it doesn't feel good to her. So so parking, it's a weird thing, but at Mosaic, when we do exit interviews, people love the park. They do love how it feels, but parking and the convenience of parking and how our parking feels comes up routinely. And it's free parking, which, again, with retail is extremely important. Women do not like to pay for parking. I don't know what it is, but even if it's just $3, for some reason, we think we're coming, we're spending our money, we're spending our time, and you're going to, that parking um, payment is, is a huge hurdle for us. I agree. You know, you, you go to Friendship Heights and you have to pay there. Right. There isn't a place where you can find free parking in, in that old area. So it's interesting. So let's zoom out a little bit okay. to retail in general and the re the entire re environment and looking at you know uh, you've obviously set the tone and what you want to do in your retail how do you see the industry evolving i mean the regional malls bob taubman was quoted as saying up to 75 percent of the regional malls that are built in this country are probably obsolescent or dysfunctional due to the, you know, obviously department store decline. There may, in 10 years, there may be only one department store left in the country that's viable, if that. So what happens to that real estate? 
you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves and what how does the industry going to adapt to it or will it be a different part of the industry? Will it become industrial? Amazon announced a joint venture with with Simon to do some of their distribution centers on the, and some of their the Sears of Petty stores. So how, how do you see that uh, uh, coming about, Jody? I do. I, I, I said this earlier. I think there are four trends that have been accelerated and really amplified in COVID. And, and one of those trends is the rationalization of retail. So this was happening beforehand. And I think that, and I have always said, we are over-retailed in the U.S. and for lots of different reasons, which I can go into. Today, we're about 23 and a half square feet per capita in this country. I think that number is going to come closer to 18, which will still far exceed our, our neighbors to the north and Canada, very much exceed what you're seeing in Europe and France. We have four square feet per capita, Korea or Asia, where you have one or two square feet per capita. But if we go to 18, that means two billion, anywhere yeah. from a billion and a half to two billion square feet of retail is rationalized. So it may become industrial. It may become multifamily. It might become a church, um, but I, it's not going to be traditional retail anymore. And we are headed there. My record saying this well before COVID, but I think COVID will accelerate getting to values that allow for this to move and for retailers for at least, at least um, hurdles not to be an issue. So I clearly think you're going to see that. There is no question in my mind. Will most of that happen through malls? Yeah, I think there's so much square footage tied up in malls. I think that retail that is embedded into community that offer places where community, where people can have humanity. And, and what I say is that we now, our challenge is to find this intersection of humanity and technology. We'll do, once we get through this hump, once we make it through COVID, we'll be more successful than ever. But we'll look different. We'll have to play a di slightly different role. But yes, I think that there's going to be this clear rationalization. I think you're going to see more brands, but fewer power, power brands. And what do I mean by that? I think that the barriers to launch a brand have become so easy online that we're going to see more brands launch, but they're going, they're going to need stores. They're going to need stores for customer acquisition. It is just proven out. People have seen this even during COVID. They cannot acquire consumers at the same rate online that they can acquire in store. And, they, and the stickiness of that relationship and that loyalty that forms in the store. So the store is still going to be important, but I don't think that you're going to see brands say, oh, I need as many stores. I don't, people aren't going to need 300 stores. So I think you're going to see a lot more brands that are launched with fewer stores that they're going to choose to have. So I think that that's one thing that we will definitely see. So I thought in 2015, we saw 5,000 new stores open for major brands. 
I thought pre-COVID you'd see that number come down to 3,500. You might see it come down to 3,000. But but we'll still see they need that. And stores also are a huge part of last mile and fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see continue. There's a reason why Amazon wants to be at these malls and have more fulfillment centers. Mm -hmm. Right now, everybody saw Target's last sales numbers. Target is a terrific retailer. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, Their digital sales have skyrocketed. 80% 80% are fulfilled from the store, whether that's click and collect. And it's come down a little bit during COVID, a little bit, but 80%. So they're either fulfilling inventory-wise and shipping or the click and collect. So the cost of customer acquisition, the, the cost of last mile, absolutely. We are, we are going to need stores, but they're going to want to have stores that are embedded in communities where foot traffic number trips per per week are going to be important. And and dwell time is important to us because emotionally that means that's where people are connecting. But if we can get 1% more of your time, our retail partners are going to get 1.3% more of your wallet share. So mm-hmm. that we know there's this direct correlation. It may be that you're spending time, a little bit more time at a place and you don't walk out with it, but you order it online from that store. You call back, you get it. It's, uh, stores are, recon- brands are recognizing the correlation between time and sales. And they're also not distinguishing so much where the sales, was it actually rung up at the cash register or did it happen when somebody got home online? They Mm -hmm. know the importance of the store. So, but people's time, and I think this is one of the things that is also an impairment to a mall, is that when people, people don't go to the mall as often, when they do go, they typically will spend a lot more time than they spend with us, but we have much higher continuous foot traffic. They'll have these peak moments. Mm-hmm. So this 17 minute hyper-localization, I think it was here beforehand and it's going to stay. Sure. And so I think it's not, there are some great malls, Tyson's. Tyson's is a fantastic mall. Tyson's is going to be, it's going to continue to be a great place, but this 17-minute travel time is really important. And so those that are just functionally obsolete, difficult to get to, difficult to navigate, I think we'll find radically different purposes. So two segments I want to talk about in in the retail market a little bit and get your perspective is that have been hit probably the hardest of all the retail segments is the restaurant industry and the entertainment industry, primarily sports, theater, concerts, that kind of thing, which is not traditional retail, but certainly the sports industry drives a lot of retail sales if you want to look at it. So talk about how that's going to, you know, evolve. Obviously, right now, it's until the pandemic starts to dissipate, it's going to be brutal for those those industries, it seems. So how how are you addressing that? So restaurants, what I think is for us, 
and our restaurant partners is we have a what won't feel short term to them, but we have a short term crisis. So I I think their the business model is is sound. I think that what happened was we had a lot of our restaurant partners who didn't have the bandwidth prior to COVID to figure out digital, digital ordering, takeout. They didn't have the bandwidth to figure all that out. A lot of it was accelerated during COVID by necessity. You saw a lot of innovation. So the strong operators, this is a really difficult time. I am not in any way trying to make light of this time. It's been tough for all of us. We are partnering with, but they are a critical part of our community. And I think they will become much stronger operators. For those that were not strong operators going into the crisis will not make it through. Um, and we will see a loss. You know, you, numbers are all over the place and we don't have good numbers yet of where we'll see there's a huge restaurant relief fund that is in front of Congress now. Um, I hope I hope our Congress can move fast enough because these are entrepreneurs who don't have the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal, to make it through the next couple of months. But we've also we've also seen them innovative, not only in how they've been able to adapt takeout, how they've been able to adapt technology, but using outdoor space. And people will want to get back. Those that really focus on daytime population are supported by daytime population. Uh, this Again, this is extremely tough. So uh, when people return to work, May in, in really dense areas, will maybe another year. Um, so that's going to be difficult for them. But I think the business is one that we'll, we will see fallout, which, which is really hard for me uh, to say, but there's no question we're going to see this fallout. In other areas like theaters, I think it's a tougher business model to figure out because it's not just during COVID. I think there's been such a systemic change in how people access streaming and information. So, and, and where is the innovation going to really come from the theaters themselves? So I think that's an industry and what we've seen going into the, going into COVID was we saw the movie houses, the big movie houses go from making 25 films a year to nine. So you saw less product already coming out. You saw a lot of competition from streaming. You saw the streaming Amazon Prime video, the Netflix, be extremely innovative during COVID, where the larger theaters were were not in a place because of the physical assets to be quite as innovative. So I think this is a time where I really, we are working really hard with our theater partners, but I worry more about their business long term. Gyms and gyms, it's interesting. I think you're going to see the really high-end gyms probably come back pretty quick because they can afford, uh, they're 
customer can afford to pay for fewer people in the gym, all the cleaning that's required, et cetera. I worry about those that are in the middle, though what it's such an emotional support group that people want to be with their, they want to be in the community to work out again. And those that have been innovative and quickly learned how to do video workouts, digital workouts, reach their customer that way, I think have created a whole new business line for themselves. So uh, I'm going to divert a little bit away from some of the questions that I had there, but I want to talk a little bit about, you talked about innovation several times. What's the most innovative thing you're seeing right now in retail in general? And that doesn't have to be in stores per se, but in the way retail is presented or access to retail or what are you seeing out there that's different that that not many people know about right now about what's going on? I think where where people who are the most innovative are the people who really understand humanity, personal connection, service with the intersection of technology. So some of this is sort of old school. People, personalization is more important than ever. So when you and I were growing up and we went, the shopkeeper knew us by name, they knew our families, they they knew what we liked, they knew the color, they knew that you probably wouldn't wear brown pants, but you'd wear khaki. They knew everything. That is back. And people who can bring that in and support that with technology. So some of the apparel stores that haven't been able to open, but their their team members can do personal one-on-ones with their customers, with their clients. You've seen the customer really respond well to that. You've seen how people can use social media, but to drive human connection, not just to drive broad marketing, but to really drive individual personal connections are really doing well. People who have learned how to bring sustainability into their, the the customer cares about sustainability. They care about authenticity. They care about the stories of the products. So people who have figured that out will continue. People who can have uh, brands who have a seamless experience, whether you're online or you're you're there physically at the store, those are the ones I think who will do extremely well. Do does the customer want an avatar? Like we talk about these kind of <laughs> things. And and yeah, it, it is really innovative, but they want personalization more. They want a personal relationship and they want it wherever they are. What so whenever they want it. So they want to have met you personally, have this personal relationship with you, John, and then be able to continue that digitally. But they want to come back and make that connection. So, I mean, price has always been an issue in retail. And what you just talked about is not inexpensive to do. No. Uh, Although you can do it online to some extent inexpensively if people use it. But how does a Walmart, for instance, you know, maintain its customer base? And I mean, obviously, it's, it appeals to a, a middle to a lower end of the, of, the, of the market. You're 
most of your space is in the higher end of the market. So talk to that level at that the lower end of the marketplace as far as uh, so I think Walmart Target have done fabulous but I think I worry about those retailers who are taking out a lot of debt right now because what we found and what we saw earlier decade plus ago is those who swung to spending heavily digitally but ignored the store didn't perform well those who just invested in the store and didn't invest in technology have not performed well. So retail, this is why I think you're also going to see more brands launch on site. They're going to be able to understand customer analytics, consumer analytics. That's not inexpensive to your point, but they're going to need the stores for customer acquisition and take that technology to the stores for experience, for that real true experience, they're not going to, they, they can't afford to have a hundred stores. So they'll have 10 really impactful stores or 20 impactful stores. Balance sheet sponsorship of these retailers will be extremely, extremely important going forward. So I worry right now, I have conversations with Congressmen and women all the time that they can't, you can't saddle them with debt. They will not survive saddled with a lot of debt right now. It's too expensive. And so I think taking on debt, that's why I think these PPP loans, how they're structured, are extremely important because I think taking on a whole lot of debt to me. I just think we're kicking the can down the road and they yeah. won't be able to survive it. So if you were looking at new business today, <laughs> and I don't know if you would consider looking at new deals, but if you are, what would you look at and what would you pursue if you were looking at new business today? Yeah, I mean, yes, well, we believe in retail. I believe in the future of retail. I think we're going to go through this rationalization. I don't think that... I would tell you we are as we're we're not going to buy dysfunctional retail that we don't think we can reposition, but we're going to stay with the things that have always been most important to us. That is, first and foremost, we're going to start with location. It is old-fashioned to say, but we will start with location to make sure this 17-minute Travel time is extremely important, whether you're coming by bike, whether you're coming by car, whether mm -hmm. you decide and down the road, mass transit, you're walking. So location embedded into community, that is number one. And I can't really fix that unless it's an emerging market. I can't, you can't fix that. Ability to create a sense of place. It, is, there, is there a need? Retail for just more retail sake, but it is their ability to create a sense of place where people will want to come and spend their time and they can do it in this convenient. We're looking at markets, like I said before, we understand our role in the ecosystem. So we start with location, we start with markets that will that are driving jobs and job growth. And, and right now with people being able to work remotely, I think there's going to be this shift in the markets where, where we're going to see a lot of large growth. 
And so much of that is going to be related to quality of life. So we're looking at markets uh, that will drive that, where that, that is matched up. Disposable income, so really expensive markets that aren't driving new job growth are, are tough, are tough for us. But markets where those things are happening and then embedded into the community where we can create the sense of place and there's a void, I, I think we have, we have opportunity all day long. So Jody, let me shift a little bit to uh, your your company per se. And when you hire someone, what characteristics do you look for? We look for intellect. We we believe that we can teach people real estate, but we look for intellect. We look for people with work ethic. We look for people who are curious. Our our business is moving so fast. The pace of change. That, that if you're not curious, you're not learning every day, I think you get left behind really fast. And, and we're looking for people who are humble, but are confident. So they're not afraid to take risks, but not afraid to quickly say, that we call it fail fast. They're not afraid to fail fast, but can have the ability to recognize and to recover, to tweak, to shift. Those are the people who do extremely well in our organization. You want somebody with a point of view, I assume. Absolutely. We love opinionated people. We're not afraid of them. (laughs) They'll fit right in. Do you encourage uh, conflict internally as long as it comes out to a good place as far as, you know, making sure people see all sides of things? Sure. Yes. We, we love harmonious, harmonious, constructive criticism. We, we're, I, we do not have a lot of yes people. We don't want to, I don't want to sit around and I, and I really want to be able to hear everybody's point of view. Good. So, so we are open to really listening. I think the strongest leaders are those who, who do the most listening. How do you train your people? Do you, do you teach them these things? I mean, how do you make sure that they get emboldened with the, with the confidence to say, okay, I think I understand this, but, you know, I'm not so sure this is right. So how do I, you know, and then they get shouted down by somebody else and you say, no, wait, hold on. This opinion's important. We got to listen to it. You know, that kind of, does, you, does that happen sometimes in your organization? Yeah. Yes. I I wouldn't tell you that we're perfect. In fact, I was reading through some survey results today. We're building a baseline on diversity and inclusion in the company right now. So we're using Gallup to help us expand our, our employee engagement survey to be sure we're asking these right questions. And I think, I think for the most people, for the most part, people feel like their opinion matters, but it's probably, it's not perfect. So we're, we're working on that. But I think we have a lot of strong leaders, period. And I don't, our, our male leaders are terrific. I, I don't want to, but I think one of the things having a lot of strong female leaders is we are trained to stop and make sure every voice is heard, that voices aren't talked over. Voices don't retreat from the table. Good. And I, I think that's really picked up 
our men are fantastic at doing that as well. So that is a senior leadership absolute. It's absolutely important that you hear every voice. And so the things you're asking about come through mentorship rather than learning. I, I think it comes through mentorship. I think it comes through having those one-on-one relationships and those moments in time where people can make sure you feel empowered. You want to have the internal strength to, to step up and make a difference, you know, in, in what you're doing. Absolutely. It really means a lot to employees to do that. So in my experience, at least. So let's go to your, your personal situation. Um, let's go into wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career. So talk about your biggest win, your biggest loss, and most surprising event that happened to you personally. John, I think that's a great question. What is your biggest win? What's your biggest loss and your biggest surprise? I'm not sure that I've been able to um, think about my career that way. I'm, I know we've had multiple times where we've grown the portfolio. I think a transaction we did in 1998, where we expanded to Boston, we actually expanded to Ohio. I think you talked about the giant portfolio, asked about that earlier. Those were real moments of when that really, the recapitalization of the company I think our biggest win, though, in truth, is picking the right partners. And for me, that starts, well, truly, probably first here at home, but it starts with my partners at work at Eden's. I think that we have put together the very best team. It's Then it moves to our institutional investor partners that have been long-term extremely supportive during all moments in the cycle, our capital partners, our retail partners. I think the one thing for me, as I look back, my biggest win has been in picking the right partners. The biggest loss, again, I could go back and I could name certain moments where we probably haven't but the deal got away from us. The truth is some of the deals have been the hardest to to lose. I look back and I'm so grateful that we didn't do them. Some of the best deals you do are the best are the deals you never do. So I think I can say that. But I think the biggest surprise in my career is the impact that we have every single day in a way we don't realize. One of the greatest gifts we have as an organization and in being in retail, we impact people's lives every day in in an ordinary way. But I, I am thinking back to a particular moment that happened in June of 2015. And as a business, as an institution, as as a real true part of culture and society in South Carolina, we went through a horrible thing where we had nine parishioners of a of Mother Emanuel Church that were shot and killed. And in that moment, as really true 
parts of that society in business as an individuals. We came together as an organization and said we had to be a part of change. And in whatever way our business could impact change. And Eden's took a chance to I took a chance on taking a stance working with our national gov our our state government, um, Nikki Haley working with the legislation legislature, but working with leading the broader business community to take a stance on what was right and um, wound up not only petitioning every single member of our legislature to say, we can't be active parts of this community if we don't take a stance, but publicly taking a stance in every single newspaper. And Edens took the leadership in doing that and brought along really, truly every other business in South Carolina. And the result was strong government leadership, strong business leadership, strong civic leadership that resulted in the flag, the Confederate flag being removed from our state house and, 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 and going to the museum. And, and the reason I say this as a surprise is I think as business leaders, we don't realize the impact that we have every single day not only on our own company, not only in our own communities, but on all of those around us. And it takes a voice of one to impact the voice of millions. And that's where real change starts and comes from. And I think what I've found is that's become the culture internally of Eden's, this real true depth of culture of caring about our community, caring about inclusion, caring about making sure that that which makes us different actually is what we have in common with one another. And that's been the most beautiful sort of surprise is to watch this company be an active part every day in trying to make the change they want to see in the world. And it, it oozes out. It starts at home, but it oozes out and it oozes into our communities. We've got a long way to go. I'm not here to say that we've figured any of this out, but I think that we have found the, I think we've found the moral courage as, as a group to stand for what we believe in. Execution is something like Everything else will push to be better and better every single day. But I think the biggest surprise to me has been the impact that we've been able to make soulfully on our communities in a way where I don't think our voice has been wasted. And so for me, the wins without question have been picking our partners right. But the biggest surprise has been the impact business can have so far measured in so many ways, much larger ways than just dollar and cents that I think will leave impact in our communities and prosperity, more importantly, true prosperity within our communities. That's great. So last question, if, 
if you could post a statement on the on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Jody? Today it would say vote. <laughs> and it <laughs> and and today it wouldn't say vote in the presidential election, though I hope everybody does. It would say vote down ballot. No, because I think one of the things to build strong, huge com- building really strong communities, we need incredible, we have incredible partners, we need incredible partners, and we need people to be invested. But I think, I think we are on the path right now of putting up our own billboards, so to speak, where we are going to be launching a mantra that that will be put up at every single one of our properties and really? it will look like a billboard and it is our way of expressing rules of engagement if you will in a community and it, it will say things like be vulnerable the act of civility is the act of caring for others say hello stop express your gratitude, be authentic, allow yourself to be vulnerable, open yourself up. It will talk about how to slow down and recognize the beauty in, in people who may look different than you, but, but be vulnerable and just simply say hello. Things that feel like we learned all this somehow maybe in kindergarten, but it's it, it is these little moments of kindness that build strong community that make people feel like they're a part of something larger than themselves. And that is where prosperity happens for everyone. And, and it will show up economically. It will show up socially. It'll show up socially and it'll show up culturally. And that is the world in which we want to live. I know it's a world in which our communities want to live. So, so our billboard will show up as a mantra. You'll see them starting to roll out this week and for the next month at all of our places, and they'll be permanent. But community is the foundation on which we all exist, and it is the place we come together. So I think it's never been a more important time. Jody, on that note, thank you very much. This has been outstanding discussion. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you thank for you. having me. I really appreciate it. And I wish you nothing but health and, and wellness and, and much joy and love. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Jody. Have a great day. Take care. So uh, we just listened to Jody McLean at uh, Edens, and now we're going to transition to our postscript with my sidekick, Tom Amos, who has some interesting insights today to talk about. So Tom, go right ahead. Sure. Good morning, John. So today, uh, you know, I think out of all of your guests, I may be the largest consumer of, uh, of Eden's uh, locations here. I, I, it was just two weeks ago that I got to go over to Mosaic District, had a great time. We, we went over there and, uh, Went to Bar Taco, which is one of our favorite restaurants. And uh, everything that Jody said about the parking was was accurate. We really had such an easy time getting in and out of there. Uh, really had a nice afternoon. And then this weekend, we had a friend in town and grabbed dinner over at Union Market, 
and really great experience. We watched as they had the uh, the movie parking lot for for people to view, and uh, it was a really nice evening. So really excited about the guests and 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 her insight on those two locations, especially. I also had I had a really good I guess revelation kind of as we were listening to the podcast this week. Uh, some things really clicked for me, and I think that we've we've really been focused on diversity here with the podcast lately. And I really like the part where Jody is talking about 2006 and and her experience as female, a mother, and and how she had some insight on on retail that nobody else is. She's having very different experiences than most other people and how that led to some of the insight that she had on retail and drove her and and Eden into developing kind of a different experience when it comes to these types of things. And what I really liked about that is here I am as a white male with no kids and, and I'm able to have such a fantastic experience at these locations. And I think that there could be a tendency for people to think that if, uh, you know, uh, some type of subgroup, whatever it might be, develops an idea that there's like a zero sum approach to that and that, you know, that that's going to be better for that group. But here's a perfect example with what she's talked about, where she had the insight from the background that she had and and that developed something that was a better experience for all. And and I really I really enjoyed that. And I thought that that really captured a lot of the things that that we've been wanting to to cover here with the podcast lately. What are what are some of your thoughts on on how the podcast went? And maybe specifically, kind of the 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 idea of diversity and 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 kind of Jody's experience. Well, Jody, of course, being a lady, uh, has a a female perspective of retail, which is the dominant perspective that should be looked at. It's interesting, the history of retail that, you know, uh, the merchants historically, at least in the United States, have been male uh, leaders, the businessmen that are behind it. The uh, The fashion thought has been primarily from ladies' perspectives, of course. And Interesting, my aunt was a was a fashion coordinator for department store in Detroit that we're going to talk about a little bit later, where I, where I grew up. She was a tough-minded lady, but she had a feminine perspective, and she understood what women are looking for. And I think Jody has that perspective. She knows what women are looking for in the shopping experience and in the, in the way the merchandise is presented and the, the mix of the stores, et cetera. She's obviously analytic, analyzed it. And she understands the numbers behind it too. So she has a combination of the the uh, the physical sense of things, the emotional sense of things, and the financial sense of things. And she integrates those extremely well. So, and the success of her properties uh, demonstrates that. So as she goes forward, she's a great leader. She's a good ins- inspiration for other people in retail to follow, based on what we've seen. Yeah, absolutely, and. It's it's funny how different men and women are when it comes to shopping. We when we were over at me and my fiance went over to to Mosaic District, and you know Jody she mentions how how hard she's working to try to lengthen your shopping experience, and and how much effort they put into 
increasing your time spent there by one percent. And and I'm I'm working equally as hard to to cut cut down on my time there, right? I'm I'm trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. <laughs> and I I I want to you know get in. I want to you know we're going to go check it out. We're going to go have lunch. Maybe we grab a coffee and then we're out of there. And and Caroline said, well, let's go let's go into Target and we can check that out and do this. And 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 she much more enjoys it than than I do. But all that aside, uh, I, I thought that that location in particular was was um, much more enjoyable time spent well, for me. Also, the psychology of what she's getting to becoming being a lady, she has the I she knows. And they've observed and they've done surveys and they understand it. They're trying to understand what's going to keep people here and what's convenient so that you're 17 minutes away. I mean, the, the fact that she's down to 17 minutes door to door is tells me they've done a lot of studies yeah. to figure it out. And then this whole idea of how much time they want to keep the customer. and So they've measured things carefully. And they've obviously talked to people as to why people do what they do and what they are trying to think of. So to me, the the psychographics of things in retail is so critical and it's fascinating to me. It's uh, uh, there's probably as much psychology in retail real estate as any other, frankly. Yeah. Because you're getting in. Why do people want to shop? What's, what is it behind that? I mean, you certainly you have needs that you have to do shop for, but there are other reasons beyond that. And that's what she's kind of mined into very interestingly. Yeah, she for sure had a lot of uh, specific insights and statistics on that. So the next thing, John, you mentioned during the podcast that your father was a manager at uh, retail stores when you were growing up and that you, you worked with him and helped him out. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that a little bit and tell us a little bit about your experience growing up with your father being a manager? Yeah, so uh, my dad was actually recruited by my aunt, who his, his older sister, who joined the J.L. Hudson Company in Detroit, Michigan in the 1940s, before the, actually before World War II. Actually, she started as a, uh, right out of college in the 30s and then worked there and then stopped during the war and the Hudson's department store it was this big store downtown Detroit of over a million square feet floor area and, and their offices. It's a huge building. It took up a whole city block. It was demolished in 1981. It was imploded in the city. And as much of Detroit was transformed and still in transformation. So he started there in 1952. And at the time he started it uh, there, they had this one store and they were building a new suburban store at that point when he started with them. And they, at that point, did over $100 million in sales at that store in 1952. When you think about that, that's incredible amount of volume in that at that era. Yeah. Uh, any store today would like that kind of volume. And that was $1952. So different perspective. So it was a dominant feature. It was the, the place everyone went to shop. And so he, he was a buyer and then he was a merchandise manager. And then he got promoted to run the third largest. At that time, they only had three stores in the chain. And he ended up running the third largest store as a manager. And that store had 500,000 square feet in five stories. So it had a basement and then four stories above grade. 
All how's under that, one. How's that compare, John, to like something today? Um, most like department stores are most department stores at malls are about 150 to 300,000 square feet. The largest ones are about 300 in the suburban environment. Downtown, yeah, there's stores. The Macy's stores in Manhattan, for instance, is about a million square feet. One so totally these are much utilized. larger than by today's standards for for even yeah, the most department stores built over the last 30 years are in the 100 to 250,000 square foot range. Some are under 100, under 100. some are as low, small as 50,000 feet or 40. Uh, depart- grocery stores are between, you know, to Trader Joe's 15 up to 60, 65,000 square foot for a giant store here in Washington. Mm. Some are larger, but not many. And Wegmans, of course, is 180,000. So that's an unusual store size. But anyway, so my dad managed that store, half a million square foot store. And, and then he got promoted, he got moved to the next largest store, which was 700,000 square feet at the other part of town, Northland. So it was Eastland, then Northland. And he ended up his career managing the downtown store, which at that time had shrunk to about a million square feet. It had been bigger even before then. And he closed that store basically in 1980, 81 mm-hmm. as a manager. So that was his perspective. Managing a department store that era was a lot different because the merchandise was much more interspersed. Today, it's mostly fashion, clothing, ready to wear. Then they had everything. I mean, they had liquor, they had hardware, they had toys, they had, you know, you name it, uh, the products. You could buy just about anything there. And of course, Sears Roebuck did the same thing and JCPenney and so they were kind of the end, be all end all store. You go in and buy everything. You could have lunch there, and you'd buy all your clothing, all your your hardware, your television set, your toys, your whatever. You know, it's just a kind yeah. of a mixed bag of everything. Yeah. And interestingly, the Hudson Company merged in 1970 or so with the Daytons out of Minneapolis, became the Dayton Hudson Corporation, and today it's known as the Target Corporation. So it evolved into Target, and Target, of course, is a company that Jody has a high regard for, as you heard in the podcast. Yeah, and they're they're probably the most nimble of the large retailers, other than say Walmart, and uh, perhaps one or two others of the larger format stores to a- address the, the the current pandemic. So it's interesting. It's it's been interesting to watch, and so retail fascinates me, and I'm glad that we had a very broad-reaching good conversation with Jody. So uh, anything else, Tom, today? That's all I got. Okay, well, listeners, thank you very much for uh, listening to this uh, uh, wide-ranging conversation with Jody and and us, and uh, we look forward to uh, talking next time, and thank you.